Our goal at Send Me to Sleep is to help the world get a good night's rest. Everyone deserves that. So if you're enjoying the show, please make sure that you've followed the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and any other podcast player you use. And if you have a moment, review the show on Apple Podcasts. All of this helps the show reach new listeners. Thank you so much for your support. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to Send Me to Sleep, the place to find a good night's rest. My name's Andrew, and I'm so pleased you've joined me tonight and taken this time for yourself to ensure you get a peaceful night's sleep. Tonight, I'll be reading The Yosemite by John Muir, Part 5, Trees of the Valley. We'll be immersing ourselves in the serene world of the Yosemite's majestic trees, where towering yellow pines reach heavenwards. Fragrant cedars create golden landscapes, and ancient oaks weave tales of centuries long past. If you haven't already, find a nice place to get cosy. Take a deep, relaxing breath, and settle your body in whatever way feels most comfortable. Now all you'll need to do is follow the sound of my voice. So let your eyes fall heavy, and your breath soften, as we settle in for a peaceful night's sleep. The Trees of the Valley The most influential of the valley trees is the yellow pine, Pinus ponderosa. It attains its noblest dimensions on beds of water-washed, coarsely stratified moraine material between the talus slopes and the meadows, dry on the surface, well watered below and where not too closely assembled in groves, the branches reach nearly to the ground, forming grand spires, 200 to 220 feet high. The largest I have measured is standing alone, almost opposite the Sentinel Rock, or a little to the westward of it. It is a little over eight feet in diameter, and about 220 feet high. Climbing these grand trees, 
especially when they are waving and singing in worship in windstorms, is a glorious experience. Ascending from the lowest branch to the topmost is like stepping upstairs through a blaze of white light, every needle thrilling and shining as if with religious ecstasy. Unfortunately, there are but few sugar pines in the valley, though in the king's Yosemite they are in glorious abundance. The incense cedar, Libocedrus decurrens, with cinnamon-coloured bark and yellow-green foliage, is one of the most interesting of the Yosemite trees. Some of them are a hundred and fifty feet high, from six to ten feet in diameter, and they are never out of sight as you saunter among the yellow pines. Their bright brown shafts and towers of flat, frond-like branches make a striking feature of the landscape throughout all the seasons. In midwinter, when most of the other trees are asleep, this cedar puts forth its flowers in millions, the pistolate pale green and the inconspicuous but the staminate bright yellow, tinging all the branches and making the trees as they stand in the snow look like gigantic golden rods. The branches, outspread in flat plumes and beautifully fronded, sweep gracefully downward and outward, except those near the top, which aspire the lowest, especially in youth and middle age, droop to the ground, overlapping one another, shedding off rain and snow like shingles, and making fine tents for birds and campers. This tree frequently lives more than a thousand years, and is well worthy its place beside the great pines and the Douglas spruce. The two largest specimens I know of the Douglas spruce, about eight feet in diameter, are growing at the foot of Liberty Cap near the Nevada Fall, and on the terminal moraine of the small residual glacier that lingered in the shady Illuet Canyon. After the conifers, the most important of the Yosemite trees are the oaks. Two species, the California live oak, Caracus agrifolia, with black trunks reaching a thickness of from four to nearly seven feet wide, spreading branches and bright, deeply scalloped leaves. It occupies the greater part of the broad, sandy flat of the upper end of the valley, and is the species that yields the acorns so highly prized by the woodpeckers. The other species is the mountain live oak, or golden cup oak, Caracus chrysolopis, a sturdy mountaineer of a tree, growing mostly on the earthquake taluses and benches of the sunny north wall of the valley. In tough, unwedgeable, knotty strength, it is the oak of oaks, a magnificent tree. 
The largest and most picturesque specimen in the valley is near the foot of the Tanaya Fall, a romantic spot seldom seen on account of the rough trouble of getting to it. It is planted on three huge boulders, and yet manages to draw sufficient moisture and food from this craggy soil to maintain itself in good health. It is twenty feet in circumference, measured above a large branch between three and four feet in diameter that has been broken off. The main knotty trunk seems to be made up of craggy granite boulders like those on which it stands, being about the same colour as the mossy, lichened boulders and about as rough. Two moss-lined caves near the ground open back into the trunk, one on the north side, the other on the west, forming picturesque romantic seats. The largest of the main branches is eighteen feet and nine inches in circumference, and some of the long pendulous branchlets droop over the stream at the foot of the fall where it is grey with spray. The leaves are glossy yellow-green, ever in motion from the wind from the fall. It is a fine place to dream in, with falls, cascades, cool rocks lined with hypnum three inches thick, shaded with maple, dogwood, alder, willow, grand clumps of lady ferns, where no hand may touch them, light filtering through translucent leaves, oaks fifty feet high, lilies eight feet high, in a filled lake basin nearby, and the finest libocedrus groves and tallest ferns and goldenrods. In the main river canyon, below the vernal fall, and on the shady south side of the valley, there are a few groves of the silver fir, Abius concolor, and superb forests of the magnificent species around the rim of the valley. On the tops of the domes is found the sturdy, storm-enduring red cedar, Juniperus occidentalis. It never makes anything like a forest here but stands out separate and independent in the wind, clinging by slight joints to the rock, with scarce a handful of soil in sight of it, seeming to depend chiefly on snow and air for its nourishment, and yet it has maintained tough health on this diet for two thousand years or more. The largest hereabouts are from five to six feet in diameter, and fifty feet in height. The principal riverside trees are poplar, alder, willow, broad-leaved maple, and nuttles flowering dogwood. The poplar, poplus trichocarpa, often called balm of Gilead, from the gum of its buds, is a tall tree, towering above its companions and gracefully embowering the banks of the river. Its abundant foliage turns bright yellow in the fall, 
Its abundant foliage turns bright yellow in the fall, and the Indian summer sunshine sifts through its delightful tones over the slow, gliding waters when they are at their lowest ebb. Some of the involcus of the flowering dogwood measure six to eight inches in diameter, and the whole tree, when in flower, looks as if covered with snow. In the spring, when the streams are in flood, it is the whitest of trees. In Indian summer, the leaves become bright crimson, making a still grander show than the flowers. The broad-leaved maple and mountain maple are found mostly in the cool canyons at the head of the valley, spreading their branches in beautiful arches over the foaming streams. Scattered here and there are a few other trees, mostly small, the mountain mahogany, cherry, chestnut oak, and laurel, the California nutmeg, Torea californica, a handsome evergreen belonging to the yew family, forms small groves near the Cascades, a mile or two below the foot of the valley. The Forest Trees in General For the use of the ever-increasing number of Yosemite visitors who make intensive excursions into the mountains beyond the valley, a sketch of the forest trees in general will probably be useful. The different species are arranged in zones and sections, which brings the forest as a whole within the comprehension of every observer. These species are always found as controlled by the climates of different elevations, by soil and by the comparative strength of each species, in taking and holding possession of the ground. And so appreciable are these relations, the traveller need never be at a loss in determining within a few hundred feet his elevation above the sea level by the trees alone. For... Notwithstanding, some of the species range upwards for several thousand feet, and all pass one another, more or less. Yet even those species possessing the greatest vertical range are available in measuring the elevation, inasmuch as they take on new forms, corresponding with variations in altitude. Entering the lower fringe of the forest, composed of Douglas oaks and Sabine pines, the trees grow so far apart that no one-twentieth of the surface of the ground is in shade at noon. After advancing fifteen or twenty miles towards Yosemite and making an ascent of from two to three thousand feet, you reach the lower margin of the main pine belt composed of great sugar pines, yellow pines, incense cedar, and sequoia. Next, you come to the magnificent silver fir belt, and lastly, to the upper pine belt, which sweep up to the feet of the summit peaks in a dwarfed fringe, to a height of from ten to twelve thousand feet. 
That this general order of distribution depends on climate as affected by height above the sea is seen at once, but there are other harmonies that become manifest only after observation and study. One of the most interesting of these is the arrangement of the forest in long, curving bands, braided together into lace-like patterns in some places and outspread in charming variety. The key to these striking arrangements is the system of ancient glaciers. Where they flowed, the trees followed, tracing their course along the sides of the canyons, over ridges and high plateaus. The cedar of Lebanon, said Sir Joseph Hooker, occurs upon one of the moraines of an ancient glacier. All the forests of the Sierra are growing upon moraines, but moraines vanish like the glaciers that make them. Every storm that falls upon them wastes them, carrying away their decaying, disintegrating material into new formations until they are no longer recognisable without tracing their transitional forms down the range from those still in process of formation in some places through those that are more and more ancient and more obscured by vegetation and all kinds of post-glacial weathering. It appears, therefore, that the Sierra forests indicate the extent and position of ancient moraines as well as they do all belts of climate. One will have no difficulty in knowing the nut pine, Pinus sabiniana, for it is the first conifer met in ascending the range from the west, springing up here and there among Douglas oaks and thickets of Senatus and Manzanita, its extreme upper limit being about 4,000 feet above the sea, its lower about 500 to 800 feet. It is remarkable for its loose, airy, wide-branching habit and thin grey foliage. Full-grown specimens are from 40 to 50 feet in height and from 2 to 3 feet in diameter. The trunk usually divides into three or four main branches, about fifteen or twenty feet from the ground that, after bearing away from one another, shoot straight up and form separate summits. Their slender, greyish needles are from eight to twelve inches long and inclined to droop, contrasting with the rigid, dark-coloured trunk and branches. No other trees of my acquaintance so substantial in its body has foliage so thin and pervious to the light. The cones are from five to eight inches long and about as large in thickness, rich chocolate brown in colour and protected by strong, down-curving nooks which terminate the scales. Nevertheless. The little Douglas squirrel can open them. The people native to this area 
are able to climb the trees and beat off the cones or cut them off for more fruitful branches. Then they will roast them until the scales open sufficiently to allow the hard-shelled seeds to be beaten out. The curious little Pinus attenuata is found at an elevation of from 1,500 to 3,000 feet, growing in close groves and belts. It is exceedingly slender and graceful, although trees that chance to stand alone send out very long, curved branches, making a striking contrast to the ordinary grove form. The foliage is of the same peculiar grey-green colour as that of the nut pine, and is worn about as loosely, so that the body of the tree is scarcely obscured by it. At the age of seven or eight years, it begins to bear cones in whirls on the main axis, and as they never fall off, the trunk is soon picturesquely dotted with them. Branches also soon become fruitful. The average size of the tree is about 30 or 40 feet in height and 12 to 14 inches in diameter. The cones are about 4 inches long and covered with a sort of varnish and gum, rendering them impervious to moisture. No observer can fail to notice the admirable adaptation of this curious pine to the fire-swept region, where alone it is found. After a running fire has scorched and killed it, the cones open up, and the ground beneath it is then sown broadcast, with all the seeds ripening during its whole life. Then up spring a crowd of bright, hopeful seedlings, giving beauty for ashes in lavish abundance. The Sugar Pine King of Pine Trees Of all the world's eighty or ninety species of pine trees, the sugar pine, Pinus lambertiana, is king, surpassing all others, not merely in size, but in lordly beauty and majesty. In the Yosemite region, it grows at an elevation of from 3,000 to 7,000 feet above the sea, and attains most perfect development at a height of about 5,000 feet. The largest specimens are commonly about 220 feet high, and from 6 to 8 feet in diameter four feet from the ground, though some grand old patriarch may be met here and there that has enjoyed six or eight centuries of storms and attained a thickness of ten, even twelve feet, still sweet and fresh in every fibre. The trunk is a remarkably smooth, round, delicately tapered shaft, straight and regular as if turned in a lathe, mostly without limbs, purplish-brown in colour, and usually enlivened with tufts of yellow lichen. Towards the head of this magnificent column, 
Long branches sweep gracefully outward and downward, sometimes forming a palm-like crown, but far more impressive than any palm crown I ever beheld. The needles are about three inches long, in facilities of five, and arranged in rather close tassels at the end of slender branchlets that clothe the long, outsweeping limbs. How well they sing in the wind, and how strikingly harmonious an effect it is made by the long cylindrical cones, depending loosely from the ends of the long branches. The cones are about fifteen to eighteen inches long, and three in diameter, green, shaded with dark purple on their sunward sides. They are ripe in September and October, of the second year from the flower. Then the flat, thin scales open, and the seeds take wing. But the empty cones become still more beautiful and effective as decorations, for their diameter is nearly doubled by the spreading of the scales, and their colour changes to yellowish-brown while they remain, swinging on the trees all the following winter and summer, and continue effectively beautiful, even on the ground, many years after they fall. The wood is deliciously fragrant, fine in grain and texture, and creamy yellow, as if formed of condensed sunbeams. The sugar from which the common name is derived is, I think, the best of sweets. It exudes from the heartwood, where wounds have been made by forest fires or of the axe, and forming irregular, crisp, candy-like kernels of considerable size, something like clusters of resin beads. When fresh, it is white but because most of the wounds on which it is found have been made by fire, the sap is stained and the hardened sugar becomes brown. The natives of this land are fond of it, but on account of its laxative properties, only small quantities may be eaten. No tree lover will ever forget his first meeting with the sugar pine. In most pine trees, there is the sameness of expression which to most people is apt to become monotonous, for the typical spiral form of conifers, however beautiful, affords little scope for appreciable individual character. The sugar pine is as free from conventionalities as the most picturesque oaks. No two are alike and though they toss out their immense arms in what might seem extravagant gestures, they never lose their expression of serene majesty. They are the priests of pines, and seem ever to be addressing the surrounding forest. The yellow pine is fond of growing with them on warm hillsides, and the silver fir on cool northern slopes, but... Noble as they are, the sugar pine is easily king, and spreads his arms above them in blessing 
while they rock and wave in sign of recognition. The main branches are sometimes forty feet long, yet persistently simple, seldom dividing at all, excepting near the end, but anything like a bare cable appearance is prevented by the small, tasseled branchlets that extend all around them. And when these superb limbs sweep out symmetrically on all sides, a crown sixty or seventy feet wide is formed, which, gracefully poised on the summit of the noble shaft, is a glorious object. Commonly, however, there is a preponderance of limbs towards the east, away from the direction of the prevailing winds. Although so unconventional when full-grown, the sugar pine is a remarkably proper tree in youth, a strict follower of coniferous fashions, slim, erect, with leafy branches kept exactly in place, each tapering in outline and terminating into a spiry point. The successive forms between the cautious neatness of youth and the bold freedom of maturity offer a delightful study. At the age of fifty or sixty years, the shy, fashionable form begins to be broken up. Specialised branches push out and bend with great cones, giving individual character that becomes more marked from year to year. Its most constant companion is the yellow pine. The Douglas spruce, Libocedrus, Sokoa, and Silver fir are also more or less associated with it, but on many deep-soiled mountainsides, at an elevation of about 5,000 feet above the sea, it forms the bulk of the forest, filling every swell and hollow and down-plunging ravine. The majestic crowns, approaching each other in bold curves, makes a glorious canopy through which the tempered sunbeams pour, silvering the needles and gilding the massive bowls and the flowery, park-like ground into a scene of enchantment. On the most sunny slopes, the white-flowered, fragrant camabatia is spread like a carpet Brightened during the early summer with the crimson saccodes, the wild rose, and innumerable violets and gilias. Not even in the shadiest nooks will you find any rank, untidy weeds or unwholesome darkness. In the north side of ridges, the bowls are more slender, and the ground is mostly occupied by an underbrush of hazel, canathus and flowering dogwood, but not so densely as to prevent the traveller from sauntering where he will, while the crowning branches are never impenetrable to the rays of the sun, and never so interblended to lose their individuality. The Yellow or Silver Pine The Silver Pine, Pinus ponderosa, or yellow pine, 
as it is commonly called, ranks second among the pines of the Sierra as a lumber tree, and almost rivals the sugar pine in stature and nobleness of port. Because of its superior powers of enduring variations of climate and soil, it has a more extensive range than any other conifer growing on the Sierra. On the western slope, it is first met at an elevation of about 2,000 feet and extends nearly to the upper limit of the timberline. Thence, crossing the range by the lowest passes, it descends to the eastern base and pushes out for a considerable distance into the hot, volcanic plains, growing bravely upon the well-watered moraines, gravelly lake basins, climbing old volcanoes and dropping ripe cones among ashes and cinders. The average size of full-grown trees on the western slope, where it is associated with the sugar pine, is a little less than 200 feet in height and from five to six feet in diameter, though specimens considerably larger may be found. Where there is plenty of free sunshine and other conditions are favourable, it presents a striking contrast in form to the sugar pine, being a symmetrical spire formed of a straight, round trunk, clad with innumerable branches that are divided over and over again. Unlike the Yosemite form, about one half of the trunk is commonly branchless, but where it grows at all close, three-fourths or more is naked, presenting then a more slender and elegant shaft than any other tree in the woods. The bark is mostly arranged in massive plates some of them measuring four or five feet in length by eighteen inches in width, with a thickness of three or four inches, forming a quite marked and distinguishing feature. The needles are of fine, warm, yellow-green colour, six to eight inches long, firm and elastic, and crowded in handsome, radiant tassels on the upturning ends of the branches. The cones are about three or four inches long and two and a half wide, growing in close, sessily clusters among the leaves. The species attains its noblest form in filled-up lake basins, especially in those of the older Yosemites, and as we have seen, so prominent a part does it form of their groves that it may well be called the Yosemite Pine. The Jeffrey variety attains its finest development in the northern portion of the range, in the widest basins of the McLeod and Pitt rivers, where it forms magnificent forests, scarcely invaded by any other tree. It differs from the ordinary form in size, being only about half as tall, in its redder and more closely furrowed bark, greyish-green foliage, less divided branches, and much larger cones. But intermediate forms come in, 
which make a clear separation impossible, although some botanists regard it as a distinct species. It is this variety of ponderosa that climbs storm-swept ridges alone and wanders out among the volcanoes of the Great Basin. Whether exposed to extremes of heat or cold, it is dwarfed like many other trees and becomes all knots and angles, wholly unlike the majestic forms we have been sketching. Old specimens, bearing cones about as big as pineapples, may sometimes be found clinging to rifted rocks at an elevation of 7,000 to 8,000 feet, whose highest branches scarce reach above one's shoulder. I have often feasted on the beauty of these noble trees when they were towering in all their winter grandeur, laden with snow, one mass of bloom in summer, too, when the brown, staminate clusters hang thick among the shimmering needles, and the big purple burrs are ripening in the mellow light. But it is during cloudless windstorms that these colossal pines are most impressively beautiful. Then they bow like willows, their leaves streaming forward all in one direction, and, when the sun shines upon them at the required angle, entire groves glow as if every leaf were burnished silver. The fall of the tropic light on the crown of a palm is truly glorious in spectacle. The fervid sun flood breaking upon the glossy leaves in long lance rays, like mountain water among boulders at the foot of an enthusiastic cataract. But to me, there is something more impressive in the fall of light upon these noble, silver pine pillars. It is beaten to the finest dust and shed off in myriads of minute sparkles that seem to radiate from the very heart of the tree, as if like rain, falling upon fertile soil, it had been absorbed to reappear in flowers of light. This species also gives forth the finest wind music. After listening to it in all kinds of wind, night and day, season after season, I think I could approximate my position on the mountain by this pine music alone. If you would catch the tone of separate needles, climb a tree in breezy weather, every needle is carefully tempered and gives forth no uncertain sound, each standing out with no interference, excepting during headgales. Then you may detect the click of one needle upon the other, readily distinguishable from the free wind-like hum. When a sugar pine and one of this specimens, equal in size, are observed together, the latter is seen to be more simple in manners, more lively and graceful and its beauty is of a kind more easily appreciated. On the other hand, it is less dignified and original in demeanour. The yellow pine seems ever eager to shoot aloft, higher and higher, 
even while it is drowsing in autumn sun gold, you may still detect a skyward aspiration. But the sugar pine seems too unconsciously noble and too complete in every way to leave room for even a heavenward care. The Douglas Spruce The Douglas Spruce, Pseudosuga Douglasii, is one of the largest and longest lived of the giants that flourish throughout the main pine belt, often attaining a height of nearly 200 feet and a diameter of 6 or 7 feet. Where the growth is not too close, the stout, spreading branches, covering more than half of the trunk, are hung with innumerable slender, drooping sprays, handsomely feathered with the short leaves which radiate at right angles all around them. This vigorous tree is ever beautiful, welcoming the mountain winds and the snow, as well as the mellow summer light and it maintains its youthful freshness, undiminished from century to century, through a thousand storms. It makes its finest appearance during the months of June and July, when the brown buds at the ends of the sprays swell and open, revealing the young leaves, which at first are bright yellow making the tree appear as if it is covered with happy blossoms, while the pendulous bracketed cones, three or four inches long, with their shell-like scales, are a consistent adornment. The young trees usually are assembled in family groups, each sapling exquisitely symmetrical. The primary branches are whirled regularly around the axis, generally in fives, while each is draped with long, feathery sprays that descend in lines as free and as finely drawn as those of falling water. In Oregon and in Washington, it forms immense forests, growing tall and mast-like to a height of 300 feet and is greatly prized as a lumber tree. Here it is scattered among other trees, or forms small groves, seldom ascending higher than 5,500 feet, and never making what would be called a forest. It is not particular in its choice of soil, wet or dry, smooth or rocky. It makes out to live well on them all. Two of the largest specimens, as we have seen, are in Yosemite. One of these more than eight feet in diameter is growing on a moraine. The other, nearly as large, on angular blocks of granite. No other tree in the Sierra seems so much at home on earthquake taluses, and many of these huge boulder slopes are almost exclusively occupied by it. The Incense Cedar Incense Cedar, Libocedrus decurrens, always noticed among the Yosemite trees, is quite generally distributed throughout the pine belt 
without exclusively occupying any considerable area, or even making extensive groves. On the warmer mountain slopes, it ascends to about 5,000 feet, and reaches the climate most congenial to its height of about 4,000 feet. Growing vigorously at this elevation, in all kinds of soil, and, in particular, it is capable of enduring more moisture about its roots than any of its companions, excepting only the sequoia. Casting your eye over the general forest from some ridge top, you can identify it by the colour alone of its spiring summits, a warm yellow-green. In its youth, up to the age of seventy or eighty years, none of its companions form so strictly tapered a cone from top to bottom. As it becomes older, it oftentimes grows strikingly irregular and picturesque. Large branches push out at right angles to the trunk, forming stubborn elbows, and shoot up parallel with the axis. Very old trees are usually dead at the top. The flat, fragrant plumes are exceedingly beautiful. No waving fern frond is finer in form and texture. In its prime, the whole tree is thatched with them. But if you would see the Libocedrus in all its glory, you must go to the woods in midwinter when it is laden with myriads of yellow flowers about the size of wheat grains, forming a noble illustration of nature's immortal virality and vigour. The mature cones, about three-fourths of an inch long, born on the ends of the plumy branchlets, serve to enrich still more the surpassing beauty of this winter-blooming tree goldenrod. The Silver Firs We now come to the most regularly planted and most clearly defined of the main forest belts, composed almost exclusively of two silver firs, Abeus concolor and Abeus magnifica. Extending with but little interruption, 450 miles at an elevation of from 5,000 to 9,000 feet above the sea. In its youth, A. concolor is a charmingly symmetrical tree, with its flat, plumy branches arranged in regular whorls around the whitish-grey axis, which terminates in a stout, hopeful shoot, pointing straight to the zenith, like an admonishing finger. The leaves are arranged in two horizontal rows along branchlets that commonly are less than eight years old, forming handsome plumes, pinnated like the fronds of ferns. The cones are greyish-green when ripe, cylindrical, from three to four inches long, and one and a half to two inches wide, and stand upright on the upper horizontal branches. Full-grown trees in favourable situations 
are usually about two hundred feet high and five or six feet in diameter. As old age creeps on, the rough bark forms rougher and greyer, and the branches lose their exact regularity of form. Many that are snow-bent are broken off, and the axis often becomes double or otherwise irregular from the accidents to the terminal bud or shoot. Nevertheless, throughout all the vicissitudes of its three or four centuries of life, come what may, the noble grandeur of this specimen, however obscured, is never lost. The magnificent silver fir, or California red fir, Abias magnifica, is the most symmetrical of all the Sierra giants, far surpassing its companion species in this respect, and easily distinguished from it by the purplish red bark, which is also more closely furrowed than that of the white, and by its large cones, its more regularly whirled and fronded branches, and its shorter leaves, which grow all around the branches and point upwards instead of being arranged in two horizontal rows. The branches are mostly whirled in fives and stand out from the straight, red-purple bowl in level or in old trees in drooping collars, ever branching regularly pinnated like fern fronds, making broad plumes singularly rich and sumptuous-looking. The flowers are in their prime about the middle of June, the male red growing on the underside of the branches in crowded profusion, giving a very rich colour to all the trees. The female greenish-yellow, tinged with pink, standing erect on the upper side of the topmost branches while the tufts of young leaves, about as brightly coloured as those of the Douglas spruce, make another grand show. The cones mature in a single season from the flower. When mature, they are about six to eight inches long, three or four in diameter, covered with a fine grey down and streaked and beaded with transparent balsam very rich and precious looking, and stand erect like casks on the topmost branches. The insides of the cone is, if possible, still more beautiful. The scales and bracts are tinged with red, and the seeded wings are purple with bright iridescence. Both of the silver firs live between two and three centuries when the conditions about them are at all favourable. Some venerable patriarch may be seen heavily storm-marked, towering in severe majesty above the rising generation, with a protecting grove of hopeful saplings pressing close around his feet, each dressed with such loving care that not a leaf seems wanting. Other groups are made up of trees near the prime of life, nicely arranged as if nature had culled them with discrimination from all the rest of the wood. 
It is from this tree, called red fir by the lumberman. The mountaineers cut boughs to sleep on when they are so fortunate as to be within its limit. Two or three rows of the sumptuous, plushy fronded branches overlapping along the middle and a crescent of smaller plumes mixed to one's taste with ferns and flowers for a pillow form the very best bed imaginable. The essence of the pressed leaves seems to fill every pore of one's body. Falling water makes a soothing hush, while the spaces between the grand spires afford noble openings through which to gaze dreamily into the starry sky. The firwoods are fine sauntering grounds at almost any time of year, but finest in autumn when the noble trees are hushed in the hazy light and dripping with balsam, and the flying, whirling seeds, escaping from the ripe cones, mottle the air like flocks of butterflies. Even in the richest part of these unrivaled forests, where so many noble trees challenge administration, we linger fondly among the colossal firs and extol their beauty again and again, as if no other tree in the world could henceforth claim our love. It is in these woods the great granite domes arise that are so striking and characteristic a feature of the Sierra. Here, too, we find the best of the garden meadows, full of lilies. A dry spot a little way back from the margin of a silver fir lily garden makes a glorious campground, especially where the slope is towards the east, with a view of the distant peaks along the summit of the range. The tall lilies are brought forward most impressively, like visitors by the light of your campfire, and the nearest of the trees, with their world branches, tower above you, like larger lilies, and the sky seen through the garden opening seems one vast meadow of white lily stars. <laughs>